Romans chapter 8, we're in verses 28 through 30. We're going to focus on verse 29 today as we focused on verse 28 last week. We're in Romans 8, 28 through 30. In God's word, it's written. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us go to him in prayer. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> now, last week I told you we were breaking up 28, 29, and 30 because I, uh, there's some thick things in there. There's some uh, controversial things, and that's kind of where we landed today is upon some controversial things uh, amongst Christians within this scripture. So before we even get into the controversial things, there's some things, some notes we should remember and recall and know about ourselves first. As a church, for 75 years, we have valued in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. Now, this isn't original to us. In fact, it was St. Augustine who, who penned this phrase first hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But it was the motto picked up by the Restoration Movement, a movement that we're a part of. In the frontier of Kentucky in the United States in the early 1800s, uh, Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone saw this division amongst American churches and denominations keep popping up over and over because they were dividing over what he, they believed were non-essential doctrines. And, and so they said everyone should just call themselves a Christian church or the church of Christ. And so that's how <clears throat> excuse me, our movement kind of began. And it began with this understanding in essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, which is freedom of belief, but in all things, love. But we also remember... That we believe scripture to be our ultimate authority and guide in our lives. And so this means for us when we go to study scripture and our thoughts and feelings begin to butt heads with scripture. That it is our thoughts and feelings that are submit to the word of God. It is not that we are to make the word of God submit to us. And, and so we understand these things. Which leads us to the problematic words that Christians have fought over, have divided over, have slandered each other over um, here in this scripture. The words foreknew and predestined. In my short life, 
In all the Bible studies I've been to, anytime the word predestined or predestination appears, you can count on that being a break, a hard break in whatever study you have going on. You're not going any further because you're going to spend the rest of that class period having the discussion about predestination and people's opinions and thoughts and biblical backings uh, for that. But every believer must do something with these words. For they're in the word of God. It's our ultimate authority and guide. We are to study them, understand them, and come to some sort of faithful conclusion about them. We aren't to be flippant. We aren't to just say, well, they're there. I'll deal with them some other time. We are to deal with these words. We don't ignore them. And for over 500 years, these words have brought division within the church amongst the body of Christ as we have sought to understand it. Now, in this fellowship, in this local church, in this assembly of believers, these things are not to be a wedge that divides us. We cannot say to the other, we have no need for you, for they are part of the body of Christ as well. And we just celebrated communion together. We just shared in the victory of Jesus together. And to let what we believe a non-essential doctrine, which would be the mechanics of how we're saved, right? Is it us that chose God or is it God that elected us? The Bible, the people, faithful Christians on both sides have biblical evidence for both. And, and so we can say it's a non-essential then and, and toss it up to this mystery that we seek to understand as being faithful believers. And it's a question I would love to have answered, but I know with, it, to have answered with certainty, but I know that upon my arrival in heaven and the Father's presence, I'm not going to care what the answer is. But again, it's here in the scripture. We have to do something with it. In fact, here at our local church, I tend to lean towards a reformed theology, a reformed understanding of Christ and of the word of God. And, and so uh, casually, that's called Calvinism. Now, my dear sister in Christ, Betty Chinnis, who is always right, right? If you know Betty, she's always right, right? Some of you have Sunday school afterwards, and please let her know I told her she's always right. <laughs> Betty, you're always right. Now, she and I will disagree on our understanding of predestination and election and foreknowledge, but we still strive to work together. We still love each other. We still worship together. She is still my elder, and I am still her pastor, and that is because this cannot be something that is a wedge that drives between us. And, and so I wanted to lift that up because... Today, you may disagree with everything, and that's okay, but go and study it yourself. Let's have the conversation. Let's let iron sharpen iron. That's what it's there for, not to have iron fighting iron, but to sharpen each other so that we can be faithful and understand where we are, but also it makes all the sweeter when we come to the table together, knowing that, yeah, there's some things we don't agree on, but we agree on the most important thing. 
that it is faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross and his resurrection that saves us. And we agree that the Bible is our ultimate authority in God. These are the essentials that we're united on, on Jesus. There's many doctrines in the scripture that uh, are not foundational to our salvation. And so they, we, they land in that non-essential. We have the freedom of belief there. But don't forget that last part of what St. Augustine said. In all things love. All things love. It's how we are to treat one another in Christ. It's how we are to be as a body of believers. And it, that is what we celebrate at the communion table. The love God had for us through Christ Jesus. So, now that we've got that out of the way, right? As this church and fellowship of believers... There's room for the entire body of Christ here. There's one more thing about us. We also believe that where the Bible speaks, we speak, and where the Bible doesn't speak, we don't speak. And so that's why we land today in this scripture, because the Bible speaks about it. And so we, too, must be faithful to study it and hear it. So let's look at our scripture today, verse 29, in case you forgot. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, any time we're in one of Paul's letters, I'm quick to tell you that Paul, when reading Paul's stuff, language matters. Because Paul was a master in rhetoric and in arguments, and Paul was purposeful and intentional in all of his language. So now here in verse 29, it wasn't a comma that got us into verse 29. There was a period at the end of 28, and verse 29 begins with the big four, F-O-R, four. And so for Paul, he's saying because. So now in verse 29 and verse 30, he is laying the foundation to what makes the promise all things work together for good. So he's laying the foundation for that. And it's important we understand that's what he's doing. So, your question. What does foreknew mean or foreknowledge or to be foreknown? You know, uh, there's classically two interpretations. Some understand it that God simply foresees through time and history those who will believe on his name. And it's something that they have biblical backing and understanding, knowing that God sees all time and history. This understanding assumes the faith God foresees is ultimately of our work, of our will. The other classical understanding, uh, John Stott writes that what Paul is talking about here is that foreknowledge is sovereign, distinguishing love. Like, those are some big words. Yeah. And essentially what it is that before we ever existed, before the foundation of the world, God knew all about you, and he loved you, he called you, and he cares for you before you ever existed. That's 
foreknowledge, as John Stotts writes. That's what the other classical understanding of foreknowledge. And so understanding foreknowledge in that way, when we get to verse 28, it's that all things will work together for your good if you were called and love God because God has known you, has called you, and loved you before the foundation of the world. And what a good, good promise that is. To know that before our parents ever conceived of us, God loved and cared for us and called you all along the way. Now, the other stumbling block word, predestination, right? This is the one that halts the Bible studies that we could then spend the next three Years on, uh, and that y'all are really concerned is what's never going to get us out of Romans 8, right? But here, predestination, when we, when we look at it, uh, we, we tend to struggle with the word. Uh, we like individualism. It's, it's part of our culture as Americans. We like being individuals. We like expressing ourselves. Um, individualism is something that Adam and Eve struggled with. It's what the serpent, the devil himself, uh, tempted them with. He says, you too can be like God if you eat from this tree. That we can be God ourselves in charge of our own self, in charge of everything on our own. And so when we begin to think about predestination, we begin to struggle with it because we think, well, are we just puppets then to God? Is he just a big micromanager of every aspect of our lives? Or even worse, it leads to the, uh, uh, what I believe is a false conclusion that uh, God did all of the evil and bad things to us then. The Bible doesn't speak to it that way. But what the scripture says and how we understand it is that those he loved and cared for and called before the foundation of the world, he decided that you would be conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's what Paul's lifting up here. You're predestined that when you came to faith that then he was going to spend the rest of your life here conforming you to Jesus. And we know that as sanctification, this process of being made holy, this grace in process in our lives. And so when we look at it in context of these verses we're studying right now, it would be that all things work together for good because all things work to make you like Jesus. And that can be hard for us sometimes, right? When Jesus speaks to being the vine maker and we're the vine, and he begins talking that some of our branches will produce fruit, but they'll be pruned back. They can produce good fruit, and, and God will still prune us back in those areas so we can produce much more good fruit. And then others of our vines will produce no good fruit, in which those will be cut off completely. But he's the Vine maker, he's the one going through, pruning us and going through it. It's that conforming to Christ. It's that grace and process to continue to grow in likeness of his image. So I'll say it again. All things work together for good because all things work to make you like 
Jesus. In that, you who believe in Jesus have put your faith in him, are predestined to conform to his likeness in your behavior, in your thinking, and in your emotions. In the 90s, in the early 90s, it became popular. What would Jesus do? WWJD, we got the bracelets, we got the shirts. Uh, we even got the cool Bible covers that we could carry our Bibles in that had it all around. And it, was, and it was the question we had with other believers when we became into maybe this gray moral ethical issue of what should we do. And, and we were told to ask the question, well, what would Jesus do? Well, and, and that question is a good one itself because it begins getting us thinking about what behavior modification do I need to go through to be like Christ in this moment? But conforming to Christ is more than just behavior modification. It's also our thinking and our emotions. It's what would Jesus think? How would he think about it? And, you know, that gets to be the really hard part then in our own thoughts because we go to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And he starts talking about adultery. He goes, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. He goes, but I say to you, if you've even looked at someone else and had a thought of lust over them, you have committed adultery. And then you begin thinking, oh, Jesus thinks differently than me. But Paul also writes about that, that we are to have the mind of Christ. And then our emotions. We saw how Jesus loved his neighbors. We saw how Jesus loved his enemies, right? As they shouted, crucify him, crucify him, mocking him. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How would Jesus feel? And this is the sanctification. This is the being made holy, the conforming to Christ that we are predestined to go through because God loves us, right? So he says, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. I'm gonna change you to be more like Jesus, who is perfect, who is holy, who is without sin, who is the standard of all standards. So then we begin to understand that because God loved us and cared for us and called us and predestined us to be like Jesus, we then can trust and hold on to the promise that all things are working together for our good. Because God is constantly working on us to be more like Jesus. And the scripture says he does that in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, firstborn in Jewish culture was everything. The firstborn was the one who inherited everything. The firstborn was the one who represented the dignity of the family. They were elevated and supreme. And what God does is by Jesus humbling himself, dying on the cross and being resurrected, being without sin, fully submitting to God. And he has that inheritance. That then we're adopted as sons and daughters and we're called, what does Paul call us? 
He calls us co-heirs with Christ because Christ is the firstborn and we get a share in that inheritance. You know, Paul writes many things and in one way he puts this, I think he puts it better in Philippians chapter 2 as we read verses 1 through 11. I'm going to close with this um, because I want to let the Bible speak and not me. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in his spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.